morning. My name is Wes McKay, and I'm the senior pastor and one of the elders here at Cross Point Baptist Church. And I do want to thank you for joining us as we worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And on behalf of myself and my family, I want to thank you veterans for your service to our country and that we're able to enjoy the freedoms that we have now to open up God's Word and worship together. Thank you. Uh, we will be in Exodus chapter 14, continuing our study through the book of Exodus. And before we begin, before I read the text, I want to pray for us. And uh, I want to pray for, again, the veterans. I want to pray for particular needs in our own congregation, for Ms. Pat Ray, who is dealing with COVID right now. And, um, and then I want, I want to pray for Shane as well. Shane will be leaving tomorrow for a conference that he'll be presenting a paper at. And uh, if you think about it, on Wednesday at 9 a.m., Ten a.m. If you think about it, Wednesday at ten a.m. Pray for Shane as he presents a paper, and then I want to pray for our Thanksgiving meal tonight, as it is always a sweet time for us to get together and remember what God has done for us individually and corporately as a body. So, let's pray. God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your grace and your kindness to us in Jesus. And we're thankful for a Savior that truly does never fail us, though we fail Him constantly, God. Lord, we come to you right now humble, realizing that we don't know everything, but you do. We don't have everything, but you do. And we are needy, and we need your word right now to God, open up our hearts and our eyes to increase our affections and our love for Jesus. So God, again, we want to lift up the veterans right now. God, thanking them and honoring them and appreciating them for the service, God. And I pray that they would, as Dr. David said, feel honored today. I pray for Miss Pat Ray right now. She deals with COVID that, God, you would grant her relief and rest and a quick recovery, oh God. Lord, we pray for Shane as he prepares to present a paper on, on Wednesday that, God, you would give him peace recollection in those moments and that God you would use his gifts to honor you and Lord I pray for us right now as we uh, celebrate Thanksgiving and that as we come together to enjoy a feast together that we would be able in those moments recall to recall God all the provisions that you have given us most specifically the provision of salvation that you've given us in Christ Jesus and that we, we would truly eat a meal with thankfulness to you God and Lord, we come to you right now, opening up your word, and that God asking that is only by the power of your spirit at work in us, that you, God, will illuminate our minds to know and understand these words. And that God, that you would use them to, God, strengthen our faith, edify us, O God, and motivate us towards obedience. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. If you would stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 14, and we will read the entirety of the chapter. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. 
and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihaheroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there was no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning, watched the Lord in the pillar of fire, of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course. When the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. 
So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. You know, you think about historic crossings of bodies of water. This certainly fits into that category, but another one that comes to mind is Washington crossing the Delaware, if you remember that. Uh, everyone knows that iconic picture of Washington and his, uh, his troops crossing the Delaware that glorious night. And it's a picture, a depiction, if you've ever seen it, uh, of courage and might and confidence and bravery and power, fearlessness by those men in those, boot, uh, in those boats on that night when they crossed the Delaware. It's a picture of greatness in our U.S. history. Well, Exodus 14 contains all those same features. Glory, fearlessness, bravery, power, might, confidence. But none of them characterize Israel, right? None of them characterize Israel. But it's actually in this crossing of the Red Sea, God is the one who is shown to be glorious and mighty and powerful, fearless. While Israel is the exact opposite, faithless and fearful. And that's what we're going to see today in Exodus chapter 14. That we're going to see the power of God displayed in salvation and in judgment. And that this this display of God's power in saving His people, judging His enemies, it should generate faith, belief, obedience in us, in Him. Because this is what it did for Israel at the end of this chapter. Is that they see all these things take place before their eyes. They see the dead bodies on the shore. And their response is this. They believe in the Lord. And they fear Him. And this is the exact response for us. Cross point. Is that what I hope we get from this text today is this. Is that as you leave out of this room. After having seen the power of God displayed in judgment and in salvation in Exodus 14. That you would say. We believe. We believe. We fear the Lord. We fear Him. And so let's look at three different points from this text that will help us get a gauge on why we should fear the Lord and how He does demonstrate His power through salvation and judgment. The first point is this in the first nine verses. Is that what we're seeing here is the Lord is orchestrating the final battle. He's orchestrating the final battle. It's being brought to an end. We've gone through the plagues. We've gone through everything so far in the book of Exodus. And now it's being brought to a conclusion. This time with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But let me ask you this before we jump into verses 1 through 9. Is is anybody bad at giving directions and instructions? Like driving directions? Please don't point at your spouse. I'm just kidding. Anybody like say like they're just... They mean well, they're just bad, right? They're like, oh yeah, you go, you go two miles down here, you do this, you do that. And, uh, and so you, you hear it and you're like, that just seems wrong. Or maybe it's one of these cases. No, we'll, we'll go back to the spouse thing. It just seems wrong. It seems bad, the instructions and directions that they're giving you. And you say it's wrong and you say it's bad, but you still go ahead and do it. And it turns out that they were actually right. Isn't that the worst? Man, it's the worst, right? 
The instructions and directions, once they're, they're initially given, just seem wrong. They seem bad. They seem like it's going to end in the worst possible scenario. And what's interesting is this, in the first nine verses of Exodus 14, the instructions and directions that the Lord gives to Israel, they seem wrong. They seem bad. They actually seem deadly to Israel's outcome. Well, ultimately, what Israel and what others, maybe even Pharaoh and the Egyptians, think is foolish is actually God's wisdom and power are on display. Look at this. Look at what he tells Israel to do, what the Lord tells Israel to do in these first couple of verses. It, it begins by him saying, here Moses, tell Israel this. Tell them to, in verse 2, turn back in camp and encamp at the sea. That's very terrible instructions if you consider it. These people are leaving out of Egypt, have been in slavery for 430 years, and you know what the Lord tells them to do? Turn around. Turn around. And actually, pitch some tents. And you know what? Pitch some tents by the sea where you'll get trapped at. Right? That sounds like terrible instructions, right? Of people who are on the run, our instructions would be, if I was the Lord, which sometimes we like to put ourselves in the place of the Lord and saying, my instructions would be better, right? If I was the Lord, I'd say, Israel, you run out of here. Get out, go, run as fast as you can. Get as far away from this place. And don't go anywhere near the sea because you'll be trapped and hemmed in. Right? That, that would be our instructions. And so we're just wondering, what is the Lord doing telling them to do this? Turn back in camp and encamp by the sea. Those are very specific instructions. And it seems to be that the specificity of these instructions are intentional, as is all of God's instructions. They're purposeful and intentional, even though they may seem foolish to us, to Israel. And the reason is that he gives them these instructions that just seem, man, crazy to us. It's because God knows what Pharaoh is going to do. God knows what Pharaoh is going to do. He knows that these seemingly foolish instructions will draw Pharaoh out. Look at what it says here. When Israel does all these things, when they encamp, they turn back and encamp, here's what God knows. God knows, in verse 3, that Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel. He knows what Pharaoh's going to do. Because he's ordained and orchestrated these things. It's almost like a divine setup, in some sense. God knows that Pharaoh is going to take the bait because his heart is hard at this point. Pharaoh will see an opportunity to take advantage of Israel, to get them back. He'll take that, take that. Because Pharaoh will think, wow, look, look at this. Verse 3, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. They're trapped. we got a perfect opportunity here to take advantage of them. Look what their God has done. Their God has saved them out of Egypt, but he's led them out to a dead end to be sitting ducks for us. That's what Pharaoh's thinking. Let's take advantage of this. Their God has let them go. Their God has put them in an impossible scenario to win. So God knows what Pharaoh's going to do, which is why he's orchestrating these plans. Because God has other plans. He has this plan. The reason is... That he's leading Israel out this way to this place so that Pharaoh will do these things, say these things. 
Because in verse 4, I will get glory over Pharaoh. And I, I will make myself known to the Egyptians. God is leading Israel out to encamp by the sea so that he can get glory over Pharaoh, finally, ultimately. And that Israel and Egypt will know that he is the Lord. And one question that comes to mind is this, when you think about it. One question that comes to mind is that, okay, God has already delivered Israel out of Egypt. He's already brought them out, right? Isn't he done? Can't, can't this be over, right? Like, what? why? It, is, this, is this really necessary, God, that you have to get glory over Pharaoh? You've brought your people out of Egypt. Why, why do you need to make yourself known to e the Egyptians and to Israel at this point? You've, you've done your job, God, right? Isn't this kind of insult on top of injury in some sense? get glory over Pharaoh? Why can't God just be done? Well, no. Because that's not all that God said he would do. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 9, God said what he was going to do. He's going to deliver his people out of Egypt, and he's going to get glory over Pharaoh and show himself supreme and superior to Pharaoh. So God is not done because he said he would do these things. He is going to be glorified in Pharaoh's demise, which is why he is setting up this scene for things to happen. And so God is demonstrating his providential knowledge in verses 1 through 4, saying, I know it's going to happen. I'm sending you out to do these things. Uh, this is all going to happen this way and this way and this way. And then in verses 5 through 9, he's not just showing his providential knowledge, but also his powerful orchestration that these things are happening just as he said they would. And that's what happens here in verses 5 through 9. Look at this. Pharaoh gets word from his servants. But not coincidentally, he changes his mind. So he hears, Israel's going out. Man, what are we doing? We've got to change our mind. He changes his mind. The servants respond. They say, what have we done? We've made a big mistake. Because as you know, when Israel left, they don't have any more workers. They're done. Like, hey, we have just let our laborers go, and now we have to do the work, right? We've made a big mistake. And so Pharaoh rallies his troops. He gets all of his chariots together so that he can go after Israel. So it looks as if to Pharaoh everything is happening according to his plan, but it's actually not. It's happening according to God's plan himself. And so maybe one piece of application that we can take from just these nine verses is this. Is that sometimes God's instructions to us may seem very foolish. It may seem very unwise. It may seem very unorthodox. It may seem very crazy at points. What God has instructed us in His Word. Maybe sometimes even God's instructions may not seem ultimately good, maybe even seem harmful, but maybe next time we think these things about what God has instructed us to do, maybe we should think that we don't have the full picture as finite human beings. Maybe God is actually fulfilling every single one of His purposes and plans, just as He designed and orchestrated to do. Maybe God is doing something to glorify Himself 
And when God glorifies himself, it is always for our good. Never for our harm, as Romans 8.28 says. Always for our good. And so, when Israel sees these plans, what is God doing? He's crazy. He's foolish. Maybe we're the ones that don't completely understand what God is doing in this world. As I said a couple weeks ago, God is doing a million things at every single moment that you are not privy to. Probably more than a million things. That's the highest number I can count to. But what do you think at this point Israel believes God is doing? What do you think Israel believes God is doing at this moment? What do you think they think about God's instructions? That's point number two. Look at this. Israel fears Egypt and forgets the Lord. I know that many of you have probably had the same thing happen to you, but have you ever made a decision and you immediately regret it? Immediately. Maybe it's that Amazon purchase. Can I get an amen? Buyer's remorse, right? You go, you think you, need, you have to have this thing, you click add to cart, you click buy now, and 10 minutes you're like, what have I done? What have I done? Or maybe it's something more serious than that. You know, what was I thinking three seconds ago to think that that was a great idea? This is a terrible idea. Right? We all have those moments where we think, golly, what have I done? How can I fix this? What is going on? And right now, Israel is having one of those kind of what have I done moments. That's what we'll see in verses 10 through 12. Is that they hear of the Lord's instructions. They see everything that's going on and they're thinking, what have I gotten myself into? What have I gotten myself into following this Moses and this Yahweh? Look at this. So they see Pharaoh, they see Pharaoh and his army pursuing them in verse 10, drawing near as they are encamped at the sea. And this is their response. They do three things. First, is that their present situation, seeing Pharaoh draw near, they lift up their eyes and behold, they see the Egyptians were marching after them and their first response is this, they fear greatly. They fear greatly. They fear what Pharaoh and Egypt can do to them. Despite all that they've seen, what God can do to Egypt and to Pharaoh, they still fear what Egypt and Pharaoh can do to them. Despite everything that they've seen in the plagues, they still have a greater fear for their human oppressors than they do for the sovereign God of the universe. They fear humans. Man. They have a high view of man and a very low view of God in this moment, right? And maybe you are here this morning and there are situations or there are people in your life that send you into a panic, send you into a worry, send you into a fear. That you fear things, that you are afraid of things, that you are afraid of people. Next time that we get into a fear of panic like, like Israel does and seeing, their, seeing the Egyptians come and attack them, maybe next time we get into a panic like this, we should ask ourselves, in this moment, does God or does this person or does this situation look more powerful in my mind and heart? When a situation comes upon you or a person 
that causes you great fear, fear greatly like Israel, in that moment, ask yourself this question. Who looks bigger in my mind or in my heart? Is it this person or is it this situation? Right? Because God is not calling us to fear man, but to fear him. And so their first response is this, to fear, to fear. The second response is this, is that the present situation being encamped by the sea, seeing their oppressors come, is it causes them to blame and to go into regret, right? Look at what they say to, uh, to Moses. Verse 11, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? They're basically saying, look, I had a cemetery plot back in Egypt, in Cairo, uh, I, I had it, I had paid for it for years, I knew I was going to die there. I didn't have to come all the way out here to die. I had a nice setup, right? What, why, why are you bringing us out here to die, Moses? Could have died in Egypt and been fine with it. Then they go to blame Moses. They said, this is all your fault, Moses. We told you back in Egypt to leave us alone, right? That's what they said. Why are you bringing us out here? Leave us alone so that we can serve the Egyptians. This is your fault, Moses. Then they believe listening to Moses and thus listening to God was a bad decision. They should never have done it. Right? To Israel, obedience was a bad decision. Let me just say this to you, Crosspoint family. Obedience to God's instructions is never a bad decision. Obedience to what God has said is never a bad decision despite the outcomes, despite if it's not favorable outcomes, despite if it actually causes you pain, harm, or maybe to lack something in this world, let me say this. Obedience to God is never a bad decision. Even if it costs you your job, even if it costs you your wealth, your money, things, anything, obedience is never a bad decision in God's world and in God's eyes. But they think right now, they blame they blame Moses, they regret, and then their third response is this. They forget what they were saved out of. Look at this. Look at what they say. The audacity to say something like this. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Our lives would have been better if we had stayed in Egypt, right? They forget what God did for them. They forget what God saved them out of. That situation. They forget what God took them out of and think their lives would have been better in Egypt. You know what that's equivalent to? That's equivalent to a person who gets released from death row and they get out into the world and they get some hardships in their life and they begin complaining and saying, at least I had three square meals a day on death row. At least I, you know, I, have, my own, I have my own cell. I didn't have to go through any of this stuff. Now, how crazy would that be, right? For a death row inmate to hit some complexities of life after being released and say, man, I should have just stayed on death row. That's what, that's what Israel is saying in this moment. They're saying, man, our past life in slavery was actually better than what we're going through right now. And let me just say this, the equivalent to the Christian life. Can you imagine a Christian saying something to this degree? But sometimes we act like this. Can you imagine a Christian saying, man, this is too hard. Golly, I would have been just as happy 
just as content, just as safe if I had never come to know Christ. My current situation would have been better if I had just remained dead in my sins. My life was better when I was apart from Christ. Can you imagine a person who has truly been regenerated, truly been given a new heart, a new life, and saying something to that degree? That's what Israel is saying in this moment. My life was better in slavery. And sometimes, Christians, we can say and act in such a way that says, and this Christian life stinks. I was having so much more fun when I was apart from Christ, enjoying my life. But you were dead in your sins. You were enslaved and in bondage, destined for hell. The audacity to say something like that. That it would have been better for us not to know Christ. And so when, all, when complexities and hardships hit Israel, they begin to fear, they begin to blame, and they begin to even question the decisions that they've made, to regret them to think that they should have stayed back where they came from. Maybe right now you respond like this when devastating or unexpected situations happen in your life. That they thought, Israel thought, getting getting out of Egypt would be smooth sailing from there. And then they hit hardships and complexities in lives. And they begin to fear. They begin to question, regret, blame. And maybe this morning you've hit different devastating or unexpected situations like Israel. And you have similar responses. You fear man. You regret trusting. You blame others. You forget what God has done, whatever it may be. And let me just say this. All these responses, Crosspoint family, these all come out of a heart of unbelief. To regret, to blame, to question God, to think that it would have been better to stay where you were. Are all... All, all responses from the heart of unbelief. Because, Crosspoint family, our faith, our faith is not anchored in our present situations and in our circumstances. Where when your circumstances and present situations change and they fluctuate here and there like this, from bad to good, bad to good, sometimes our faith fluctuates like that too in those moments. From belief to unbelief, belief to unbelief. When everything is bad, say, God, how could you do this to me? You you can't be trusted, God. You're not good. You're not doing what is good. But then when everything's great, you're like, man, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Right? That's anchoring your faith in your present circumstances and situations. But Christians, our faith should be anchored in truth where it is immovable regardless of what situations, circumstances we may go through, whatever hardships or complexities this life may give to us. Is our faith is anchored in truth, not in perception, not in present hardships, not in things that we see. This is what 2 Corinthians 5, 6-7 says. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by what? Sight. Hebrews 11 and 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things what? Not seen. We do not anchor our hope 
and faith in things that are seen and in this world and in circumstances because they are always fluctuating and moving. We anchor our faith and hope in the resurrected Christ and in the truth of the gospel because those things never change. So when your circumstances and change, anchor yourself in the truth that never changes. The anchor that never moves. The gospel. Tomorrow you could lose all your wealth, all your money, all your health, everything that you have. You know what will not change? Christ is raised from the dead and he has forgiven us of our sins and he has given us a new life in him. That will not change for you, Christian. That will not change. Do not be like Israel when they've experienced salvation, they've experienced and seen the awesomeness of God. And then when present circumstances and hardships come, they say, where is God now? Who, who is God? Look what he's done to us. Anchor yourself in truth. Anchor yourself in what God has done and what he has promised to do. This is the words of reassurance that Moses will give his people in the point number three is that Moses gives words of reassurance in this moment to Israel. And I'll just go ahead and give you, in my own terms, what he says to Israel in this moment, when they fear greatly, when they begin to blame and regret and question what God has done. Here's, here's what he says, in my own words. Shut up and watch what the Lord will do for you. Wes is paraphrased. Point number three. The Lord fights, and Israel fears the Lord. The Lord fights, and Israel fears the Lord. You know, we've, we've experienced many great leaders in history. As I said earlier, Washington and Link, you know, Lincoln and Churchill, you think of all these different people. I was talking with, with Gayan this past week about different uh, sports coaches that have that have been great leaders like Lombardi and Pat Summit and and uh, uh, who's the other one, Gayan? Gino, pe- people like that. Great leaders who are able to lead people to to do certain things, to win championships sometimes, to to make changes. Great leaders lead groups of people to do great things. In the Bible, it's a little bit different. Great leaders in the Bible lead groups of people to trust in the Lord, the only one who can do great things. And that's what Moses is doing right now in these verses. Is that we're getting a biblical leadership lesson from Moses right here. About how he's leading. Now we saw up until this point, Moses was a little shaky, right? He's like, I don't have the mouth, I really can't do this, I don't know what, you know, going on. But man, we get a like, hey, this is a great picture right here of what Moses is doing. It's a great leadership lesson. Because when Moses is blamed, when Moses is accused, as we just saw in verses 10 through 12, when Moses is, is basically you know, saying, Israel saying, you're, you're the problem here, Moses. It's your fault we're in the situation we're in. Moses doesn't respond by saying, I'm so sorry, guys. Let me, let me try and fix it. Or, too bad. Or, hey, better luck next time. You know, anything like that. It's not how Moses leads these people. No, he actually leads them with truth and tells them the truth. His response to them is, trust in the Lord and you ain't got to do anything because you can't. So he tells them three things starting in verse 13. Well, actually two things. Actually three things. He says, fear not. Fear not. Don't fear them. 
Don't fear Israel. I mean, don't feel, fear Egypt, Israel. Fear God. What can they do to you? Have you not already seen what I can do to them? Have you not seen that? Right? Do not fear man. Fear God. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I what? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I fear? Don't fear man. Fear the Lord. Fear God. Fear Him. Jesus will say the same thing to His disciples. And don't fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. He's not saying, you don't have to fear at all. He's saying, rightly place your fear in the one who has all authority to even, to even judge and send people to hell. Fear that person. Don't fear man who has no control over that. Fear the Lord. And then stand firm. Hold your position. Don't move. Have an unwavering, unyielding trust that the Lord will act on your behalf, Israel. Place your feet deep in the concrete of God's truth so that you are immovable. Trust in the God's power, His provision, His character, His protection, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. They throw, throw in the fire, you know, about to get thrown in the fire, and they're saying, hey, you better compromise. And they say, look, the Lord can deliver us. He can deliver us. And if He doesn't, we still won't bow down to your gods. Concrete. They're in the concrete of God's truth. A similar thing is said by the prophet Jehaziel to Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20, 17. You will not need to fight in this battle. Jehoshaphat, stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. That's what, that's what Moses says to him. Fear not, stand firm. Because here's your contribution, Israel. That's what it says, verse 14. Here's your contribution. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The salvation that you are going to experience, again, does not require Israel's contribution. Salvation will only, solely, exclusively, and entirely come from the Lord and not from them. Their contribution is to watch and see. It would be similar to if you imagine a situation where you sit down uh, at a restaurant and you, you eat a, you know, you, you get the you get the receipt after you eat the meal and you're, you're thinking, this is humongous. I cannot pay this bill. This, this, this is more than I expected. I, I, I don't know what to do. I, I can't pay this. And somebody just comes up to your table and says, you don't worry. I, I got your bill. I'll pay it. You just eat and enjoy. And this is what God is saying to Israel. You, don't, you can't pay the bill. You can't. But I'm going to pay the bill. I will fight the fight. And all you got to do is eat and enjoy. Watch and see what the Lord is going to do. Watch and see. Israel is the spectator and God is the Savior. It's not the other way around. 
And this is another form of what unbelief takes, as if like Israel said, we got to do something. we got to manufacture something. we we got to fight for ourselves right now in this moment. Anybody got a sword around here? Right? The Lord said, you, don't have, you can't contribute anything to this. That's another form of unbelief, right? We've seen two different forms of unbelief, even in Exodus 14. We have Pharaoh, who in his unbelief thinks he can control everything. And then we have Israel, who thinks they can contribute something. And both of them are forms of unbelief. Pharaoh does not have control, and Israel cannot contribute. Only the Lord has control, and only the Lord can save. And so this is what he does. Now he provides them salvation where he will get glory over Pharaoh in verses 19 through 31. It's that he sends the angel of God to be the presence and the protector for Israel, his people. Right? And now Moses is given instructions that God will divide the sea and that Israel will safely pass through it. The God of Genesis 1 who creates the waters is now the one who parts them. They will walk on dry ground, is what it says. And that word for dry ground, the last time it's used, guess where it was used? I think I heard somebody say Genesis 1. Yeah, good job. Genesis 1. So this is reminding you, this God of Exodus 14 is the same God who created these waters in Genesis 1. and He will make a way for salvation. And like God had already determined and orchestrated is that they're going to go into the sea, and Pharaoh and his, his army is going to follow them in there. They're going to go after them. And then they're going to get in there. And guess what happens? Their wheels get bogged down. They get trapped in there. And then they realize, oh no, we've made a big mistake. It's a trap. And what do they say in verse 25? They say, turn back. The Egyptians now realize in verse 25. They realize something the Israelites did not realize and recognize in that moment. They realize, oh no, the Lord fights for Israel. What have we gotten ourselves into? That's what they say. But it's too late for the Egyptians. God finishes the job, covers them with waters, None of them remain. God finishes it. He throws them into the sea. And if you put your eyes on verses 30 through 31, this ends Exodus 14 kind of like a, the headline of a newspaper or of a story. The Lord saved Israel, and they feared and believed Him. The Lord shows His great power and judging his enemies, and saving his people. And so we see, as the title of this sermon is, we see God's power. We see God's salvation. And we see faith and belief all come together in this story. God's power on display in saving his people and judging his enemies. You see, belief in the people as they respond to what they have seen. Power, salvation, belief. And let me just tell you this to conclude, church family and visitors. God's power, salvation, and the people's belief, they're all united together here at Themes in Exodus 14. But they're also united together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
as Paul will say in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for what? Salvation. To all who what? Believe. To the Jew first and to the Greek. Power, salvation, belief. This is what's happening in Exodus 14 this morning. What we need, Christians, non-Christians alike, is we need the power of God displayed like it was displayed in Exodus 14. We need that same power. And the God of Exodus 14 is the same God in Romans chapter 1. Same God of the entire Bible. This morning, what wicked sinners need is the power of God displayed in Exodus 14. And it's not a power that is displayed in saving them from Egypt, but a power that saves us from our sins. This is in the gospel. Power, salvation, belief. Salvation from sin, death, hell, coming judgment. This can only be accomplished from and by God's power through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, and His resurrection. And that we, like Israel, can only experience and enjoy God's power on display in salvation through fearing the Lord, through belief in Him. This is how we gain entrance into the kingdom. This is how we enjoy the salvation that God has provided. And so, to conclude, I, I want you to think about these three things from Exodus 14. The Lord is the God of salvation and judgment. The Lord is our salvation, and we contribute nothing to it. And lastly, there are only two responses to God's display of power and salvation. You can be like Egypt and Pharaoh. Harden your hearts towards this message. Reject it and rebel against it. And you will meet the same demise and end as Israel, as Egypt and Pharaoh did. Or, you can respond like Israel did at the end of Exodus 14. Seeing the great display of God's power and salvation through Jesus Christ and say, we fear the Lord. We believe in Him. The Lord saves this morning. That is my urge to you. Christian, if you are here this morning, give thanks to God that you cannot contribute anything, anything to the salvation He provides. And that you have nothing to fear in this life, but only to fear the Lord. And that your circumstances and situations that come up in your life should not dictate the strength of your faith, but your faith should be anchored in something else that does not change, and that is in the truth of the gospel. So repeat the truths of the gospel to yourself when you come to a situation. And for you, non-Christian, you're here this morning, I would plead and urge with you, there's only two responses to this message of the good news of Christ. Destruction for those who reject and rebel against it. Or salvation for those who believe and fear the Lord, repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Let me pray for us. God, we love you.
thank you for your word. I pray that we would be like Israel in this moment as we see the great power, the great power displayed in saving your people and the crossing of the Red Sea. And that, God, we will respond in greater fear and trust and belief in you. I pray this morning that if anyone is in here and living in unbelief, that, God, that you would call them to salvation and repentance and faith, knowing that you are the Lord God of salvation and of judgment. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray these things.